Good morning to you. I'm Howard Feldman. This is the Sunday Synthesis Podcast with me, Howard Feldman, and uh, COVID expert physician and pulmonologist, Dr. Anton Marburg. It is the 24th of January. Where are we? Have we passed our peak? And I don't mean physically, although I did feel it this morning on my run. Definitely passed my peak. Uh, but uh, that aside, COVID, we're talking about that. Anton, good morning. How are you? Are, am I past morning. my peak? Well, you know, I think there's something called patient-doctor confidentiality. So I wouldn't mm, say that live good. on air that you passed your peak. I would intimate right. it. Right. Suddenly that's a But I think let's get a bit more, yeah. more serious and let's get into the reality of what we're dealing with. There are currently 99,338,137 cases worldwide with 2,130,626 deaths and 71 million cases resolved. The United States has 25.5 million cases of 427,000 deaths. South Africa has 1,404,839 cases with 40,574 deaths and 12,271 new cases in the last 24 hours with a recovery rate of 86.6%. Currently in Gauteng, there are 5,431 patients admitted to hospital with COVID-19 of which 1,042 are in ICU and 575 are ventilated. But in the past week, we have seen a decline in transmission as evidenced by reduced new cases daily, a steady decreasing positivity rate from a high rate of 36% down to 19% in the second wave. So we're definitely going in the right direction. It doesn't mean we can now start doing things that we weren't supposed to be doing but we need to continue going in this direction. We need to continue with our social distancing. We need to continue with our mask wearing. And then we need to continue doing what we do. The fall in numbers in, in South Africa, is that indicative of uh, the lockdown? Is that just the natural course of, the, of, of COVID? Are we seeing the same declines or the same kind of graphs in other parts of the world? So if you look anywhere all over the world, they all have the same type of decline. And if we look at our first wave, the first wave, the whole thing was about 60 days of this peak and then the numbers coming down. We're now at about day 50 of the 60-day peak. So this is what we would expect to happen once we're now over the peak and we are in a steady decline. I think the important thing to notice is that going up a mountain is dangerous, but coming down a mountain can be as dangerous. So we can't exclude the fact that we still may be coming down this mountain, but we still have got to have a bit of trepidation and we've got to be very careful. Look, the numbers are still high. We're still on 12,000. But if we compare it to two weeks ago, when we were sitting at 22,000, that's a massive decrease. And the numbers are very high for testing. I mean, people are testing. Over 60,000 tests were done on Friday. You know, we, we've got a 19% positivity rate, which is still high, but yet it's reassuring that the numbers are coming down. Right, because at one stage our positivity rate was close to 30 or over 30%, wasn't it? Was it was 36%, 36% wow. at one stage. So, so and if we look at the world trend, I mean, yes. the world trends follow this, this exactly. The only problem is, and this is the big problem, is that in countries like the United Kingdom, where they then relaxed all of their lockdowns and they, people relaxed, a few weeks later they went into their third wave. And without a vaccine and without people being responsible and without people following the law and the rules, this is what's going to happen to us if we don't follow the rules. So when put the vaccine aside, we're going to get to talk about that in a short while. But let's assume that that we're heading now, we've passed that peak, we're heading down towards more manageable numbers. When do you think we can anticipate a third surge? So 
you know, if things go according to plan, and if we haven't got the vaccine, which I don't think we will have uh, by sort of the end of April, we're looking at end of April, beginning of May for a third surge, which correlates with our winter period when it's colder and there's other viruses and there's more congregating of people inside and indoors. And we're obviously hoping that this third surge won't happen. But uh, the reality of the fact is, as I said, if we follow the worldwide trends without a vaccine, it's a reality. Would you still encourage people to get the flu vaccine uh, this year? Yeah, we're still going to encourage people to get the flu vaccine because it doesn't mean that just because we didn't have it last year that we're not going to have a spark of the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is very important. You know, I'm a very big advocate of vaccines. And uh, not only the flu vaccine, the pneumonia vaccine, and just keep updated with all your vaccines. Right. So it's, it's still valuable to make sure that, that you get that. Definitely. And it would be safe to, to get the flu vaccine, even if it's at a similar time that the, that the COVID vaccine reaches us. Very safe. There's no contraindication to having both. Okay, let's just talk about that vaccine for a moment. Um, in terms of uh, you, you're on the front line, you were, we were told that our front line uh, medical personnel were going to be getting it by the end of January. It's the 24th of January today. So uh, it's obviously this week that you're going to be getting yours. When have you booked? So, yeah, we've all been told the end of January, 1 million uh, vaccines will be available for the frontline healthcare, which is 1.25 million people. Um, I've booked for my vaccine today. I've booked for it tomorrow. I've booked for it the next day. I'm still waiting for a call or some clarification on that. Mm-hmm. And also, I think we've all got to discuss about the vaccine. You know, there's a lot of anti-vaxxers out there. There are a lot of people Wait, that just, don't just, want just, the just vaccine. To be, just for clarity, you were joking, obviously. Yeah. You've heard nothing about I've the... About absolutely the nothing. There's been no communication between government and doctors and uh, frontline workers and nurses and physios and anybody on the front line about whether or not we're getting a vaccine or not. Isn't that enormously frustrating for you? Enormously, beyond frustrating. I mean, the, the number of people that are putting their lives on the line to help other people, all you would ask for is some common decency from our government to say, look, here's a vaccine. We respect what you're doing. Let us try and treat you so we can actually help you in helping other people. But that's unfortunately what we're dealing with at the moment. And, and if you weren't, if you aren't able to get it when promised, then surely they should communicate and just say, look, there is a bit of a delay. It's 10 days, it's two weeks, it's six months, but at least then you know what you're talking about, you know what you're dealing with. It's unfortunately, important. communication is not a strong point of our government. We have family mm. meetings, but that family meeting obviously doesn't include the poorer side of the family. Right. Or, uh, yeah, it's, and it's a one-way communication, which I think is always a problem because we are told things, but uh, there doesn't seem to be you know, the opportunity to interrogate further. Let's just talk about the vaccines, where, you know, rollouts around the world. What are you seeing in terms of effectiveness? Let's talk about how it impacts um, the, uh, the, say, the, the newer variants. Give us an overview here, please. Okay, so I think it's important to just go back a little bit and and remember what the vaccines do. These vaccines target the spike protein and they try to elicit neutralizing antibodies that bind to that protein. Now we've got all this talk about these variants, the B117 variant, that's from the UK, the um, 501Y.V2 variant, that's a South African variant. And these also occur in the spike protein, which is necessary component for the virus to bind to your ACE2 receptors. Now, the vaccines can target more than one location on that spike protein, on the actual virus. 
And therefore, if there is a mutation like these, these variants, then there's hopefully other parts on that spike protein that this vaccine can target. So let's go, for example, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is the one we've been promised that we're getting, which has got a 65% efficacy. So if we are getting that, and it's only got a 65 efficacy rate, do we know that it's going to be efficacious against the 501YV2 vaccine or virus, you know, this variant? And that's a big worry. It's a big worry for healthcare workers. It's a big worry for people who are getting the vaccine. But what the experts are telling us is that you should still have the vaccine because it still gives you over 50% protection or immunity against this virus. So it's a tough decision to make. You know, as I said, ideally, I would go for the Pfizer vaccine. That would be my first choice because there's a 95% efficacy of that vaccine. And Pfizer have stated they do believe that it is effective against this variant of the virus. But they haven't done tests yet to prove its efficaciousness against the 501v2 variant. So we're still waiting for that. And maybe that's a delay. Maybe that's why the government are delaying giving us the vaccine. Who knows? But if assuming you have that vaccine, could you still get could you still get the Pfizer vaccine later, or would that be no? Uh, you you can't get you can't get polyclonal multiple vaccines. You know we don't know what the effects are going to be from that. You know so you right. can't get a Pfizer vaccine and then twelve weeks later get a Moderna vaccine and then another twelve weeks later get the AstraZeneca vaccine. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work like that. Your body can't handle that type of immune stimulation, and there With could be course. obviously adverse effects to that. Right. With regards to this new variant, uh, I know that you've been saying for some weeks that although you're being told by um, clinicians or, 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 or the experts uh, that, in fact, it is much more transmissible but not more serious, you've been saying for a number of weeks that your experience in the hospital is that it is significantly more uh, aggressive and you're seeing people much sicker. What is the latest information that, what is the latest that you're seeing on this and what are we being told? So I think there's a very big difference between academics and clinicians. And all the academics are saying that this virus is not more virulent, it's more transmissible, but it's not more severe than the one in the first wave. And there's not more deaths. And all the immunologists are saying that it's the same for, for what they're hearing and what they're seeing. But they're saying what the clinicians are seeing are anecdotal. And I challenge that. And I say, we are seeing different things. I've spoken to many of my colleagues throughout Gauteng, and everyone is going through the same sort of, of procedure, seeing what they're seeing. They're seeing younger people. And I'm talking about people over the age of 45 to like 55 in ICU on ventilators. We're ventilating far more people than we did during the first wave out of out of desperation because we have no choice. Okay, when the first wave we could avoid it with other modalities where we didn't have to ventilate them. Mm-hmm. We're seeing younger people dying. Our numbers in the in the Hev numbers have gone up dramatically in the numbers of deaths. So I can't understand how they can say this. And then also, if you read the articles in the United Kingdom with Boris Johnson saying that it's proposed probably more severe and there's a probable higher mortality in the United Kingdom. Well, that's obvious. That that goes with what we're saying and what we're seeing as clinicians and people on the front line. So I can't understand why they're trying to dampen the effect of what we're seeing, but it's there. We're seeing it. We're involved in it. We sit every single day. And once again, we're talking about hospital patients. We're not talking about people out of hospital, but it's definitely more severe. It's definitely more critical and it's definitely younger people. Is is the South Af- so-called South African variant and the so-called UK variant, are they very similar in terms of how they're behaving? 
Well, yes and no. Once again, if you listen to the academics, they're not similar at all. But if you, if you read all the articles and you see that the United Kingdom have had their highest death rate over the last few days and their numbers are staggering upwards, and it's been the same with but, us uh, for the I last mean, few I don't weeks. mean in terms of the first, uh, the initial uh, COVID-19. I'm talking about the, the, the reference to South Africa and UK. How similar are those two variants? I think they're very similar for, for what they're doing. You know, the, 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 the dramatic effect that they're causing and, right. and the consequences and sequelae of what we're seeing from these two or from these variants of the multiple mutations. I mean, we're dealing with different mutations here than what they're dealing with, and we're dealing with different variants. But at the end of the day, we're all seeing dramatic surges. In fact, in America, they're speaking about new variants as well, and they're worried about new mutations as well. So it's not only the United Kingdom. It's not only South Africa. It's all over the world that they've got to worry and, about and I see these that, new mutations. Uh, the, the Israeli government are considering shutting the airport completely for the next couple of weeks in order to to stop the new variant from coming in, new variants from coming into the country. Yeah, that's for sure. For two weeks, they'd want to do that. Mm. All right, lots of questions around schooling. Can we please? Yeah. Try and clarify this because I've I think before we go to screening, can, can we just discuss one important thing, which I think is very important with the vaccine? Sure. Okay. Is that people aren't speaking about pregnancy and the vaccine. Ah. And that's a very important pregnancy thing. And there's a, lot of, impact, a number of questions around yeah. that. So mm. there's a lot of observational data that show that people can have a high risk of getting ill if they're pregnant. But what the studies are showing us, especially with the mRNA vaccines, is that these vaccines don't contain live virus that causes COVID-19. Therefore, by giving someone the vaccine, you can't cause them to get COVID-19. Also, they don't interact, the mRNA, the messenger RNA vaccine, don't interact with a person's DNA because that messenger RNA does not enter the nucleus of the cell, which is the command center of the cell, okay? The cells basically break down the messenger RNA quickly and experts believe that they're unlikely to pose a risk in pregnant women. But that being said, and there's no definitive studies, that the actual risks to pregnant women in the fetus are still unknown because they haven't tested them on pregnant people. Now, if we look at influenza and we look at the influenza vaccine, we do give these vaccines to pregnant people. So one has got to weigh up the risk factors, your comorbidities, your contacts, are you a healthcare worker and are you pregnant, are you not, and the environment you're in, are you living in a hotspot area, and weigh all of these things up together with your physician and together with your gynecologist and pediatrician and decide whether or not you should go ahead and get that vaccine. And in terms of the uh, vaccine and, and fertility, have we seen anything or are there any studies around this? Lots of questions around this. So there are lots of anecdotal studies and, and that we can't comment on once again because there's no one who's actually done a, a directed peer-reviewed study to say, is it affecting people's fertility or does it affect their fetus or does it affect the pregnancy? And that you're going to have to speak to your actual doctor who's working in that field. Right. And I think that is, uh, that is very, very important. Ask the questions yourselves. Uh, don't go onto Facebook simply to get the answer that you uh, think you want to hear. Let's talk about schools because there's been so much confusion. I wrote an article at the end of last week. We need to give the give the schools a break. They are trying really hard. Uh, lots of confusing information, again, from government where people weren't sure whether we could open, couldn't open, play schools, uh, older kids. Uh, you know, I've heard you quoted and misquoted. Just, can you please just 
tell us what's going on here. Yeah, so I think it's very important. And as you can see, it's like a yo-yo. One day we say this, the next day we say that. And, and that's for the sole reason is we're watching the trends, we're watching the numbers, we're seeing what's going on in the hospitals. So last week we said, don't send your kids back to play school. This week we're saying, you can send your kids back to play school. So while we're like flittering between these ideas, and the reason is very, very simple. As we've said, the numbers are going down, the trends are going down, the infectivity rate is down from 36% to 19%. Our hospitals, albeit are full, are not as full as they were a week or two ago. So we've got that in inverted commas luxury to send our kids back to play school as long as they are fulfilling the protocols, as long as the parents are strict, as long as the schools are being very strict. And, and that also goes across now to opening the, the private schools on the 1st of February. You know, there's a lot of talk about that. Personally, I believe the safest category of kids in school is your primary school kids. They are the most sort of conscientious about what's going on. High school kids are a problem and play school kids are a problem for different reasons, but they can contain it. And the schools have been doing well. And the school that my kids go to have got a medical advisory committee where there's a number of doctors that sit on that committee and they look at all of these details and they look at what's going on in the community, what's going on in the area surrounding, what's going on in the population. And, and they take all of these aspects into, into, into respect. And some schools make unilateral decisions, but most schools have got medical advisory committees which can help them decide this. And that's why we're saying we now do believe that it's the right time for the kids to go back. We've always stated that schools are the safest environment for the kids because they're kept in a bubble. The teachers are wearing their masks and visors. The kids are wearing their masks all the time. They they socially distance, they spaced out, and they're not having play dates and they're not doing things that they would be doing if they weren't in school. So now's the time to take that window. Now's the time to take that opportunity and get them back to school. I mean, that being said, without the health issues, the anxiety and the mental issues that these kids are going through, we just have no idea. Forget about the parents who are at home. Okay, what about parents? Them. They're becoming alcoholics. About the kids. You know, my kids aren't even at school and, 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 and I've got a drinking problem. I, illegal, illegal alcoholics. Illegal Close. alcoholics. Close. But Close. The point of the matter is that we've got to remember that this is about the kids now as well. And we've got to make sure that our kids can go forward and have some self-preservation and, and get rid of the anxiety and get them educated and get them moving forward. Mm. I mean, the schools have done a sterling job on Zoom. There's no doubt about it. We're very blessed. Mm. But now it's time to take this window of opportunity. So, so you mentioned the kids, uh, the school your kids are at, and I know that you're on that advisory board. I also know that you you consult to to a number of of other schools as well. How do you handle it when when uh, you give advice and and the school decides for whatever other reasons, well, they're going to go in a, in another direction? How do you handle it as far as as being um, a medical consultant with with the schools? Look, I think that's an important thing. At the end of the day, we are just in inverted commas medical consultants. We're just giving our opinion. We don't run the schools. We don't tell the schools what to do. We give them an advice. The same way I give advice to a diabetic patient. And I say to that diabetic patient, you shouldn't eat sugar. You shouldn't eat half fatty foods because this is all going to affect your sugar. It's their choice to listen to that advice. They come to us for that advice. It doesn't mean we're right all of the time. It's their choice to take the data to take the medical, to take the financial, the administrator, and put it all together. So we are giving a medical answer to these schools, and they've got to take with it what they feel is necessary and take it forward. 
provided, of course, that they are not using you as a check-the-box exercise. In other words, so that they can say, well, we've consulted with our medical team, and we're not listening to them. They might not mention that, but we've consulted with our medical team. Then, unfortunately, you, uh, the presumption that parents... Uh, might make is that in fact you have given that advice that the school is at, is is following, but in, whereas you haven't. Yeah, it's a very difficult uh, line that you know because uh, as I say, we don't expect them to agree with us all the time. We, sure. we hope that they do. We're coming with advice because we want to protect our children, we want to protect our teachers, we want to protect our staff, and we can see on the front lines of hospitals what's going on. But at the end of the day, it's their choice and uh, they've got to make that decision and then they need to be very strong about it. And they need to say that we are making the decision despite what our doctors are telling us or, or in agreement with what our doctors are telling us, but they need to give that information across. But at the end of the day, we're moving forward now and we have to, as I say, right. take this window of opportunity now. So just, so just to clarify, 1st of uh, February, quite a few of the schools are going back. Private schools. Private schools. You are comfortable with that, provided the protocols are in place? I'm not comfortable. I'm extremely comfortable. I'm sending my own kids back on the 1st right. of February back to school because I know how things are being done and how well they are being done at our school. Right. A couple of parents of teenagers um, or older kids who have maybe went on rage, they, they've had, uh, they got COVID, they're telling their parents they're immune, they're fine, they're safe, um, having quite a hard time with these older kids. Uh, can you please give us your view on kids that have had the, and presumably it would have been the, the new variant. They would have gotten, uh, they would have gotten uh, ill from that. And uh, w what's the current position? So we don't know if it's a new variant. We don't know if it's the, the, the old variant. We don't know what the variant is unless it's been genomically tested by the laboratory. That's the first thing. Second of all, just because you've got antibodies doesn't mean you're protected against the different mutations of that variant. It's the same as when we vaccinate people. For the first few months, we're still going to have to wear masks because we're not sure if those people are fully protected yet, if they've got their antibodies, if they've got the immunity to fight off, and if they are going to transfer the virus to other people. That's our hope. The same way as I've always said that influenza, you can still get influenza once you've had the influenza vaccine, and you can still transmit it to other people, but in a much less severe way. So our advice, you still got to wear your masks. you still got to be careful. You know, there's a lot of studies going about asymptomatic people and severely symptomatic people. It's tend to show that those who are severely symptomatic have been in hospital, have a much higher title or much higher number of antibodies and a much better cell immunity and memory cells and T cells against this virus. That being said, there was a study that came out that people who were donating plasma for convalescent plasma against the antibodies or against the, against the virus that only 50% of that plasma was effective in neutralizing the sera oh, wow. of people with COVID-19. So yeah. you've got to take that into account. It doesn't mean you must stop giving plasma. You still need to give. I mean, it's, it's important because we need to learn a lot from it and it can help many people and it can be used for other things as well. But that's just your point. You know, it doesn't only always cause neutralizing antibodies and that's what you want and that's what you need. Very, it's a very, very important point. Uh, Grant asking, uh, in terms of the, the dangers of exercising when you don't know that you've got COVID, I think this is actually a very important question. So, so basically, the biggest worry 
with exercising and COVID is something called a myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle, and that can be devastating and dramatic. If you've had a very mild form of COVID and you weren't really sick, you maybe just lost your sense of, of, of smell or you just had a bit of dizziness, but you were actually okay, we still advocate that you wait at least two to three weeks after you've had the COVID before you start getting back into a mild exercise routine. Let your body dictate you, let you see how you're going. If your heart rate goes up dramatically, more so than when you're used to, then stop exercising, give yourself a few more weeks. The people who have more severe COVID or those who are in hospital need to give themselves at least four to six weeks rest before they can right. go back and should ideally be checked out by a physician or a cardiologist mm -hmm. to make sure there's been no strain on their heart. This is not a joke. Okay? This is a very serious thing because for people who are athletes and people who are serious exercisers, this can cause a deleterious effect on your heart muscle, can cause arrhythmias, can cause I'm just heart writing attacks, this down because can cause severe this, enlargement this, of your heart. Yeah, because I'm, I'm talking to you. Because this talks directly the, to the, me. The serious but, athlete, yes. The serious, serious part of the being an athlete, yes. I'm not a fun yeah. athlete at all, that I can tell you. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I do think that's important. The other thing, of course, that we do need to talk about because uh, only one every in every three questions was asking about ivermectin. Um yeah, uh, I'm bored of the question, but uh, it's very clearly an important one. It is important. And once again, it's still illegal to prescribe or to take ivermectin in this country as evidenced by the South African Health Professions Regulatory Authority. You are not allowed to take it. There's not enough studies to mandate taking it in this country to show that it is effective. It's still on the sidelines. Remember, once again, it's still a medication that is used for cows and for other animals, and it's not peer-reviewed enough to say that it's safe. Obviously, if the studies come out and they say it's effective and it's worthwhile, we will start using it in abundance. But right now, we do not see any benefit to using it in our patients, and this is a across the board in our Gauteng ICU consensus group with all the specialists. Everyone is on the same page. And just, okay, so just to be clear, I mean, it is used in, in humans in certain parts of the world for, what's it, river blindness and whatever that would be. But, yeah. but, but we, it's not used in, in South Africa. It is not approved for human use. It's not approved for human use for, for COVID-19. As you said, it is approved for human use for river blindness in different parts of the world and for different topical. So then that's when you put it on as an ointment for certain conditions like scabies and a few other things. But if you look at Brazil, where it's being advocated that it's, it's part of their, their national treatment and their, their guidelines, if that's the case, then why are there so many millions of people still sick with it? Why are there so many millions of people that are still getting into hospital? And why is it not doing the effective thing that everyone's saying it's supposed to do? In fact, we've seen quite a few people that have come into hospital that have been in ivermectin and land up in ICU and land up on ventilators. And that's the proof of the pudding. And, and just again, to be clear, you, you really don't have an agenda around ivermectin. It's not that you don't want people to get well. It's not that you are paid by the other um, drug manufacturers. The, the anti-ivermectin drugs, yeah. Look, no, because it's because it is, And I've, say, I've stated this for a long time. I've stated this for a long time. We are not hiding medication because we don't want to get people better. We want people better. We want people out of hospital. We want people to be healthy. We want people to be safe. We are not withholding medication for any reason other than the fact of safety profile.
I think that's a very, very important point because somehow we seem to forget that along the way. Uh, you know, we talk about it and, and it's, it's the Facebook conversation, um, but it's actually guys, uh, people like Dr. Anton Marburg who, who are fighting every single day, who aren't sleeping at nights uh, because they're trying to fight for people's lives. They are not... Uh, there is no reason why they would be withholding any medic, any uh, any valid and any useful medication. Obviously, if that that information changes, uh, you would only be too happy to uh, to to embrace the use of that or anything Definitely. else. Right. It's it very similar to hydroxychloroquine. It was yeah. very similar to that whole the whole thing. So yes, there is good news. Okay. Mm -hmm. So first of all, as you discussed at nauseum. Private schools are going back on the 1st of February. Parents can celebrate. It means the numbers are going down. It means the trends are going down. It still means we need to be vigilant and just take care of what's going on. There's reports that have come out that the elephant population in Kenya has doubled. Whales have come back to the Atlantic Ocean after about 100 years. And of course, another game tonight against a suboptimal team who, quite unlike a previous American president, managed to come out on top for a short while. I suppose they say even a broken watch tells the time correctly twice a day. Hopefully, because they're playing at home, they won't park the bus tonight. But that remains to be seen. And just to quote, often it isn't the mountain ahead that wears you out. It's the little pebble in your shoe. Be careful, be safe, be vigilant, and look after yourselves. We've got good things coming forward. It's absolutely brilliant. I love that. Uh, Dr. Anton Marburg, thank you as always. I'm Howard Feldman. This has been the Synthesis Sunday podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Please uh, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll be informed when we post a new recording. Be safe, be healthy, and God bless.